0: Gang, we all know that a premium Spotify subscription gives you access to millions of songs and thousands of podcasts. But did you know that a premium Spotify subscription also gets you access to tons of audiobooks for free? It does, gang. Listen to great books like Storyteller, the Dave Grohl memoir, or Life by Keith Richards, or The Woman to Me by Britney Spears. Listen, there's all kinds of books on there. There's fiction, nonfiction, self-help, anything you're looking for, man, they got it, and you can listen to it for free. Just go to Spotify.com or download Spotify from your app store and start listening today. That's Spotify. Millions of songs, thousands of podcasts, and now audiobooks, available with your premium subscription. Spotify.com. Let's get down. Hey, gang, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of How Did I Get Here? I know you have a lot of choices out there, and the fact that you're listening to this episode right now is not lost on me, so thank you. I'm not sure what platform you're listening on, but whatever platform you're on, give us a follow. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating. It takes just a second, and it means the world to me. Plus, it really helps the show. So thank you in advance. And remember, the last 100 episodes of How Did I Get Here are available on all streaming services. Now, enjoy the show. johnny i'm your host welcome to the show i hope you guys all had a good weekend whatever it is you did this weekend i'm actually doing this intro on sunday super bowl sunday i'm doing it in the afternoon so i have no clue who won i probably won't have any clue who won if i was doing this on monday morning to be honest with you <laughs> unless i checked out the news and saw what happened um anyway i hope you guys all had a good weekend i had a good weekend i uh, actually went to uh went to San Antonio or some place in the Hill Country just outside of San Antonio to play a show with Skyrocket last night. It was a uh, the uh, great uh, San Antonio Greater Chamber of Commerce uh gala. And there was a room we played the after party which started at 9. The event started at 5:30. This is going to explain a little bit. The event started at 9:30 with a sit down dinner and speakers and presentations and this whole thing. And then uh there on the su- uh, there was a room that was curtained off on the side of this giant ballroom. And then they opened the curtains to reveal Skyrocket and the after party, the dance party. There's a dance floor, there's lights. They open the thing. We kick off the thing with Dancing Queen. This whole room of probably like 2500 people just kind of pours into this little room and just kind of like it's like insane it's like a packed rock concert for an entire set people are losing their minds they asked us to go on early and like you know they're like hey we kind of finished up the the speaking things early so we'd like to you guys to jump on so we can kick this after party off a little early because they're antsy these guys are antsy they've been there since five thirty and it's about eight forty five now so we get up there and we play until about 10 and we take a break uh, a 15 minute break and we're like hey let's go back out there Okay, so we went from playing to a room of probably like 25, 2, 2, people, giant ballroom, to <laughs> about 17 people, and uh, like, you know, everyone had been there, they were there for a thing, they danced for a whole hour and 15 minutes, what else are they going to do, so we come out for the second set and just have an insane set for 17 people, it was super fun, and that those in those instances, skyrocket, like we, we get along so well, we've been doing this so long together that when it when it switches into, (laughs) when it switches gears into a smaller crowd, we kind of do things to entertain ourselves and do things that we wouldn't normally do. Like we we don't do it as straight laced as we would normally do. Not like we go insane and play terribly. We just kind of give a little bit more drama to the show. (laughs) So it was a really, really fun show. Everyone had a great time. And gang, I want to let you know that my other band, my brand new band, Happyland, is we're resuming our residency for the next three Mondays, starting today, the day that this podcast comes out, which is Monday, February twelfth. Skyrocket plays tonight at uh, at the Saxon Pub at six p.m. and uh, Happy Land. For those of you that don't know, our legendary country and Americana artist Kimmy Rhodes, her son Gabriel Rhodes, amazing songwriter and producer. We've worked on a lot of music together over the last few years. A lot of the music of mine that's come out. I've written with him and I've, I've recorded with him and stuff. Uh, the great Sean Pander, who's a great singer-songwriter as well. We have an amazing band that's Harmony Kelly on bass, Louie Rhodes on keyboards, and John Chipman on drums. We play at 6 p.m. at the Saxon Pub here in Austin, Texas, right before Bob Schneider. It's been a great time uh, playing with this band. We've been in the studio recording this last week, and it just, it's, it's really a lot of fun. The name is... Is exactly what the band is happy land baby it 's a great time, no drama no uh no you know no news, no bono speeches, no uh no media talk, just music, good times, making each other laugh, and the audience uh, having a good time so come on out saxon pub six p m tonight, February twelfth or the next two mondays now after february we 're taking hiatus for a few months until summer we 're going to be releasing some singles and stuff, but everyone 's going off to do a bunch of stuff so That's what happens when you have a great band like that. Everyone's in demand individually. So we will reunite and start playing public shows again in the summer. But come on out to one of these Mondays because it'll be a great time. All right. It's a great band. Happy land. Uh, Speaking of legendary Texas musicians, And uh, and things of that nature, gang, I have a great, great, great show for you today. Today, my dear old friend who's been on the show probably four or five times at this point, uh, Texas Black Rock Maverick, the great Bevis Griffin is back on the show today. And this time he brought a mutual friend of ours, an old friend of mine that I have not seen in at least 25 years. This guy named Jason Crouch. He is amazing, all right? Jason Crouch just wrote a royal, an oral history of Bevis Griffin in this magazine called The Journal of Texas Music History. Now, The uh, the Journal of Texas Music History is the first academic journal to focus on all aspects of Southwestern music and uh, Southwestern music history. And it's been around for 23 years. They put out one edition a year, and this this one, Bevis is on the cover, and this amazing, in, extremely in-depth article that Jason wrote about, about Bevis is on there. I will put a link to that in the text of this podcast. You can go to uh, Texas State University, uh, org because, uh, sorry, to explain the Texas. The Journal of Texas Music History is part of the uh, Texas State University, the Center for Music History, which is part of the Department of History. There's a lot of history and stuff there. And Jason Crouch's history, let me tell you a little bit about him, man. That guy is fantastic. He's currently a research librarian at Texas State University. He's got two history degrees. He's from the great city of El Paso. He's a gigantic music fan. And in the 90s, he was in a band called the New Texicans. And his band, the New Texicans, and my band, Mr. Rockababy, Used to play at Steamboat. In fact, uh, we shared a weekly bill, or they played. I feel like we did a bunch of shows together over time. But anyway, uh, it was great to reconnect with Jason. It was great to read this amazing article the, the 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 research that he did on the great Bevis Griffin. Bevis has been on the show for a long time, and he's he's really. Uh, He's an important guy to this music community and he holds the stories and the history of this music scene and not just this music scene but many music scenes. He's one of the guys that started the uh, Black Rock Coalition back in the 80s. Now, uh, Bevis Griffin, Texas Black, uh, Texas Black Rock Maverick is going to be having an event coming up Saturday, February 24th at 2 p.m. At Texas, at Texas Music Museum which is here in Austin. I'll put a link to this as well. This is Bevis M. Griffin, Texas Black Rock Maverick in conversation with Gene Fowler. Now this will be a great, great conversation about Bevis's history, along with the rest of the history of of, of the music in Austin, stuff that was happening in the seventies and the eighties. Bevis lived some time in New York, but Bevis's story is incredible, incredibly rich. He tells some great stories on the show about meeting Billy Gibbons in the seventies, and uh, and and his love for Jimi Hendrix, and Sly Stone, all of the great things. And Jason has some great. Great insight and spent a lot of time researching Bevis and getting into this. So without further ado, uh, talking about the Journal of Texas Music History article that he's written about Bevis Griffin. This is Bevis Griffin and the author of that article, Jason Crouch. Let's get down. So man, uh, it's great to have you back on the show for probably your fifth or fourth, fifth, sixth time on the show. Fifth, many times, fifth or sixth. Yeah, and Jason, what a great surprise! I saw your name You're on the to email. Have to give me a jacket. Yeah, you know what I, mean? <laughs> I know we should start giving out robes. Um, I have not seen you in so long, but the new Texicans always have a warm feel. Anar and I actually, it was a long time ago, but we had a whole conversation about like remember those guys (laughs) yeah we we hung out didn't we have a weekly didn't we do a residency together a lot
1: of shows together at steamboat yeah here stay on that mic sorry a lot of mondays um holiday shows big weekend shows yeah texkins what was the name of your bass player uh ken andre ken ken andre uh, he was at the steamboat on nights we were not playing. He yes, yeah, I lot. was
0: going to say I spent a lot of time with Ken.
1: Yeah, Ken Andre <laughs> and uh, Willie Lopez, a lead guitarist, Chad Morrow was the rhythm guitarist, Steve Strader was the drummer and and I was the singer and kind of rodeo clown. Yeah. But we had a lot of great shows there. A lot of year we played there for more than a year on every Monday night and then Danny would invite us for special shows, which was great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I miss that band. Those, those were good times, too.
1: Absolutely, and and I'll tell you, uh, one night, Mr. Rocket Baby unveiled uh, Starfish and Coffee, and we were just <laughs> we were outrageously awesome. jealous. Yes, because we'd always <laughs> talked about doing a song off of Sign of the Times, and that one was perfect for y'all. It was perfect. You, yeah, it's like mentioned. a children's
0: song. <laughs> yeah, it was
1: fantastic.
0: That song's so good.
1: The whole record's...
0: That coming. whole record is really good, huh? Um, So... Let's start with this thing. You wrote an amazing article, right. extremely in depth. Must have taken a while to do a lot of that research, huh?
1: Well, we did. Uh, we did a series of interviews in the fall of '22. So I think we did about nine, at least two-hour sessions. Sometimes uh, a little longer, depending on. Uh, once Bevis was rolling, I didn't want to stop him, so. We generally did a Saturday morning, and uh, it was a lot to, to to think about and ponder and put together. And yeah. And so, uh, I'm glad that you like it. I'm glad that Bevis likes it. Uh, I think that it's, it, it, and I, I am proud of it, most definitely. Yeah. So, this is a great story to tell.
0: Yeah. So. And so, this is all leading up to this uh, Bevis uh, M. Griffin, Texas Black Rock Maverick in conversation with Gene Fowler, Saturday, February 24th at 2 p.m., At the Texas Music Museum. I've not been to the Texas Music Museum. Is that new? I have not been No,
2: it's been there for some time. As a matter of fact, uh, I I became aware of it, I'm going to loosely say, around 2011, 2012. And it sits adjacent to uh, Kenny Durham's backyard Uh on East 11th Street. Yeah. You know there's like a church building I J- think so. Uh, just on the other side of the street. And that's where it's, o- that's where it's occupied. Oh, it's occupied. So great. I can't remember the circumstance that actually drove me there, but um, once I became aware of it, I went for a visit. Yeah. And I, it was really striking because it was uh, curated by this uh, uh, musicologist, Professor Um Clay Shorky, Clayton, uh-huh. Clayton, Dr. Clayton Shorky, you know. And he had a very comprehensive, you know, collection of, of ephemera and memorabilia uh, dating all the way back to, like, the 30s in, with regard to, like, Texas music yeah, personalities. And he had a well-developed and well-cultivated, you know, chronological timeline of like who was doing what where from the era of like Bob Wills you know what I'm saying and all that so what kind of struck my attention was that he had ephemera from the late 60s and early 70s and he had like profiles on like Cracker Jack you know so that you know struck home with me because that was my community, right? That band was kind of like the pivotal anchor for me inflecting into what I call the deep end of the pool. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But he had like so much documentation from like the obscure blues and jazz, African American blues and jazz artists of Austin, indigenous Austin origin. Right. You know, of course, you know about people like Dr. James Polk. Of course, you know, but we're talking about you know people that kind of surfaced briefly in the '90s, or I guess in the in the late '80s, early '90s, like the Gray Ghost. You know, who had a residency at the Continental Club. I uh, know. Via Steve, yeah, he was like a barrelhouse blues pianist. I, I mean, like, I, I just like, don't know who he is. Like I'm There's, just giving yeah, you yeah, the yeah, short yeah, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Gray Ghost was like a contemporary of like Pine Top Perkins, right? Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was like Muddy Waters, yeah, colleague and everything. But Gray Ghost is like from that ilk, like Roosevelt Sykes, right. and a whole you know slew of really you know incredible uh, uh, let's just say you know, Delta influenced pianist, right? You know, which was a whole lexicon in itself anyway dr Shorky had this just amazing uh, amalgam you know of personalities that had roots in austin you know what i mean so
0: there is that whole thing of the way that austin music is presented it starts at the armadillo kind of and like a little bit before like they what's the place that was down I can't remember the name. The Vulcan gas. Yeah, Vulcan coming. gas. Yeah, and then and then armadillo. But there obviously was music here before that. Yeah.
2: Well, the, the 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 crux of that conversation is kind of the thing that spurred me right to want to at least make my story available uh, because one thing I was really con- con- conscientious about, Johnny, was that I was really let's say personally enamored of. The way that Austin had a tendency to embrace these like elderly, like blues. Yeah. We call them legends or pioneers, you know, people like Hubert Sumlin. Yeah. From the classic chess records era. Yeah. Had eventually migrated here just due to the magnetism of Antones. Wow. And I've often tried to magnify the fact that Anton's was a real paradigm shift for Austin, in my opinion. Equally as much as the armadillo world headquarters. Oh, 100 percent. Right, yeah. because yeah. I was literally boots on the ground from day one. I right. remember what Sixth Street was before Anton's. Right. Opened its doors. I knew Clifford Antone casually when he still had the deli, little deli operation yeah, yeah. up on, up on uh, Lavaca Street, 15th and you know, 15th and Lavaca. That right. Their family yeah, sandwich place. Yeah. Because I was. Yeah. A lot of people don't don't connect the dots, but I was really. Highly social inside of the, what I call that nascent Austin blues clique. Right. So Jimmy Vaughn. Yeah. Kind of being at the apex of that. But everybody in that coterie from, from this venue that we used to populate called the One Night, which is now Stubbs.
0: Right. Okay. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. One Night. Yeah.
2: It was a notorious kind of... Uh,
0: Sorry, this I was. I, was just, I think I, I read about it in Jesse Sublet's book, about a book about the gangsters. Yeah. Here in, yeah.
2: Yeah, because it was kind of a. It was kind of a. I don't want to say anything incriminating per se. <laughs> broad, but I would put it this way: you know, it had a cast of characters sure. that had you know questionable backgrounds, so sure. to speak. The way I related to it, it, it struck me as a biker bar, okay. like the banditos. You would see a lot of bandito presence there. Yeah. But the place itself was just so eclectic. It was just bizarre because you'd walk into this place and it was, you know, that whole row of that whole block of Eighth Street, where where um, Stub sits now, at that time was nothing but a, a, a series of little shambolic, secondhand, yeah. s- salvage type businesses right. of various description, either electrical or plumbing right. or this, that, and the other thing. So right on the corner sat the one night spelled (laughs) (laughs) k-n-i-t-e we should have told you a lot right there right (laughs) and it had you know a suit of armor
0: (laughs) outside by the door like
2: the way that people used to post the quote-unquote wooden indians yeah 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 Yeah. a a coat of
0: they had one of those at the saxon pub yeah yeah they had a real one there (laughs) you
2: know what i mean and then you go in and the ambiance was just (laughs) just like sanford and son it's the only way i could explain (laughs) it right because it had all sorts of just brick brick hanging from the ceiling. That's awesome. Literally, yeah. you know. Anything that they could cause to defy gravity. Long yeah. Lawnmowers. Like things that theoretically would have been insurance, you know, liabilities, bro, were like nailed or glued to the ceiling. You know what I mean? And it just gave you this real surreal sense of anti-gravity. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But long story short, Jimmy Vaughn had... His his band, The Storm, they were kind of an anchor um, residency there. Every Monday, they would have a Blue Monday. is okay. what they call it. And that brought everybody out of the woodwork, you know, because they were extremely popular. Although, you know, outside of Texas, Jimmy wasn't really recognized right. to the degree he would become in the 80s. Sure. You know what I mean? But everybody already had kind of like Knighted him as like the the guy Godfather of the blue scene yeah. in Austin for whatever. It is. So, but the coterie of people that were there because at that time, like Paul Ray of Paul Ray and the Cobras, was playing bass in the Storm. Okay, with Jimmy Vaughn. This was before Keith Ferguson ever came to Austin.
0: He's from Houston, though, right? He's from Houston, yeah, Houston yeah, but he yeah. came
2: to Austin literally straight from San Francisco. Wow, interesting story. So you know. I was already self-expressionistic by the time that I got here. I'm already trying to do this uh, hybrid of like Jimi Hendrix and Sly, right, right, with no money, right? right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I'm, you know, putting my looks together, you know, from from Goodwills and Salvation Armies, and I'm, I could, I could do some primitive sewing, right? And I would, I would just do a Frankenstein. Situation on a ball gown, or this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, make a vest out of it, or you know, I could wear any women women's pants. Right, right. Because I had like a 28-inch waist back in those days. You know, it's
0: like Mr. Rocket Baby stole all of our our old trip from like 70s Bevis.
2: Yeah, well, you could you know you could (laughs) say, but you know, I was I was already heavily tracking Jimi Hendrix and Sly as influences while I was in high school. Right. And to backtrack, you know, I was already smitten with the British invasion when it started mm-hmm. in 1964. I was 10. Yeah. You know, so I wasn't like late to the party, right? Like I, right. I got on the bandwagon. As soon as Ed Sullivan dropped, I want to hold your hand. I'm right there and I'm in the mix. And of course, growing up in Los Angeles, the uh, AM radio was homogenous and they would play pop music like Frank Sinatra or whatever, alongside rock and roll, alongside R&B. Oh, really? Yeah, it was Uh. all in the same playlist. If it was
1: on the charts. If it was on the charts, you
2: know. So you could could hear the Everly Brothers and James Brown in the same one-hour cycle. Yeah. So that's how I developed a real, what I call, you know, um, broad appetite for music because I had exposure to it in a way that was unfiltered. I say all that to say, going back to Keith Ferguson, right? So I'm kind of looking like, uh, you know, a different sort of Skittle in a bowl of Skittles.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I didn't
2: know they made that color of Skittles.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah.
2: And a friend of mine said, I want you to meet this friend of mine named Keith. He's from San Francisco. He's really cool. Like that sort of thing. My buddy's name was Drew Pennington. Drew was kind of involved with the, with the rough, with the rough crowd, with the so-called, you know, yeah. contingent, right? But he was a harp player, and he was a friends of Jimmy Vaughn and all these other things. He was from Lubbock. That's a whole other series of conversation, right? The, like the Lubbock influx versus the Houston influx, sure. versus the Dallas-Fort Worth, right, right, influx. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's the, that's the chemistry or the DNA chemistry of the Austin music scene. Correct. Like those three. Uh, indigenous markets, right? right? So so I'm, I meet this guy, Keith Ferguson. Well, first of all, he's got like swatches of pink hair and pink, pink woven in, or, you know, his hair's got swatches of color, like Todd Rundgren. Yeah, You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That's the only yeah, thing yeah. I could reference yeah, yeah. it to. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of people doing that right, at right. that time. And he had this really great like shag haircut, like this beautiful British Rod Stewart level shag haircut, right? Yeah. And he was glam. Yeah. You know, he was wearing Asian kimono, you know, had the gypsy look that I was emulating. Right. Jimi Hendrix, he had that whole thing going, bangle bracelets, and he had tattoos.
0: Right, yeah. Which almost nobody did did. at that
2: time. He had the Lyle Tuttle style sailor tattoo, Right. You know what I mean? Right. With a whole nother story. But anyway, I, I, we we met hey. and, okay, we, and we connected just kind of based on the fact that like, oh yeah, okay, so you're a peacock too. Yeah, I can kind of yeah, do yeah. that. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Now, of course, he's like seven years older than me. Right. So, if you're 20 and you meet somebody 27, they seem like they're 47.
0: Right. right. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean.
2: But one thing I did have was a good instinct how to just kind of like shut up and listen and not like show my naivete to the sure. point to where I get kicked out of the circle. Right. You know what I mean? Of course. I look like I belong there, so they let me hang. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what I'm saying to you is that there's Keith and me looking like Hendrix acolytes. Uh huh. On stage, Jimmy Vaughn has got like long hair straight looking like Ozzy Osbourne oh really from the from the debut Black Sabbath album. yeah yeah right Right? that's wild you know just wearing like jeans and a t-shirt he's not you know he's not super retro Jimmy yet right right you know what I mean right playing with his head down and if you close your eyes it's like you know Hubert Sumlin, Albert Collins, Albert King, BB sure. King just dripping, you know what I'm saying, effortlessly right. from this guy, right? So the audience was transfixed, right? They had a black drummer named Otis Lewis. He was and this is one of the recurring themes of my whole narrative is like I would go to these events or go to these situations and I was always hoping to see another Black person in the room, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now it wasn't like there was any unspoken code, you know what I'm saying, that the people from the east side of town shouldn't be here or this, right, that. Right. The they just weren't interested, right, to say the least, right? What I found was intriguing was that the white musicians of that blue circle were always going to the east side. Of Austin, to socialize and jam and interact with the black musicians that were active at places like Charlie's Playhouse, right? You know, or uh, you know, a host of other. There was a there's a host. There was a host of little surviving night spots on East Eleventh and East Twelfth Street in the seventies. It was still pretty uh, vibrant at night. It wasn't like desolate. Right. Like you kind of see it now. Right. Well of course it's been kind of re- revamped. But 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 how it's it was gentrified. like in the in the eighties and nineties. But what I'm talking about was the original stuff.
0: Yeah, the lights were out there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There was there was stuff going on and there was a lot like a lot of little what we call shot shotgun shacks. Yeah. You know, like little clubs and yeah. things like that. And there was people playing music. But it wasn't like this this heavy contingent contingency to where you'd go to a nightclub and it'd be like well, at least 25% black people and 20% Hispanic people and, you know, whatever. You right. know what I'm saying? It was always just complete disproportionate right. 95% white white people. Right. Or right. in some cases, maybe a high contingent of Hispanics. Right. But very few black people ever showing up on the scene. Right. So that's how I became aware of, like, W.C. Clark. Because he had right. a real popular group with Angela Straley yeah. and Denny Freeman and Derek O'Brien called Southern Feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it, I, I came to understand that, that W.C. was influential because he had had this really great professional stint with Joe Tex right, and had kind of been in Joe Tex's core performing outfit and had done like all of the... TV shows like Shindig sure. and American Bandstand right, and whatever right. have you, you know, of the day. And so in Austin, he was kind of like uh, a mentor. Right. Right. Like Stevie Ray Vaughan would tell you effusively that, that it was when he was ready to start Double Trouble, WC was the first person that he went to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because WC was a great multi instrumentalist. He's a great bass player sure. and a great guitar player and yeah. an excellent singer in his own right. Yeah. So this is what I caught wind of, right, was that these white these white musicians were really intrigued and respectful of the black musicians, but it wasn't necessarily going swing the opposite way. Right. It, was a, it wasn't that right. like there was a right. contingent of black musicians populating these Young, white, hippie nightclubs. Correct. So that's kind of how I established my uh, presence on the scene because the way I'm thinking about it with so much naivete, right? I'm thinking to myself, like, well, you know, everybody loves Jimi Hendrix and everybody really likes Sly Stone. So if I kind of look like those guys, maybe they'll like me.
0: Right, right.
2: You know what I mean? As yeah. opposed to thinking like, well, what's this black guy doing here? Right, right. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Now that sounds so reductive to say it out loud. Right. But, but- it literally was kind of the the kernel that was giving me my courage to walk into these spaces. Because you have to understand, I grew up in Los Angeles. Right. I didn't grow up in the South. Right. South Central Los Angeles was racially diverse. Before the Watts Riot occurred in
0: 1965.
2: Right. Here people are talking, and so I didn't have any sort of trepidation about moving into spaces that others may or may not consider to be predominantly white. Right. Right. Like to me, it was just a club. Right. Or it was just a, a jam or right. whatever the situation was. Right. But, uh, The irony of the situation was, like I said before, uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the um, instinct and the tenacity of the people like Paul Ray and Jimmy Vaughn and Derek O'Brien and Angela Straley. Correct. Because they were not just tourists. Right. 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 right, like they were friends with right. these people at Charlie's Playhouse or at Alexander's. Sure, Alexander's was a barbecue joint, you know, way out on Maina Road, and that was literally the first time that I saw Jimmy Vaughn play a live performance with Kim Wilson before they officially did the, 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 the Fabulous, fabulous Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds. That's awesome. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So let me ask you this, real quick. Sorry, uh, not to derail everything. Uh, but I just kind of w- I want to get to this this Texas Music Journal and kind of talk about what it is that that it's about. Like uh, this is the 23rd year of this.
1: From what I understand, yes, sir, sounds right.
0: You do one a year then.
1: Um, I think it is is annually now. It okay. might have been biannually in the past, um, but it is yeah. It's a it's a big deal once a year now, uh, and. It, Published in on, on in print, uh, literally, and then it comes out soon thereafter uh, in a digital fashion.
0: It's weird that it's, <laughs> you have to say it's in print now, um, but that's part of the the Texas. Uh, uh, sorry, the Center for Texas Music History at the Department of History at this at the Texas State University. Texas
1: State, absolutely.
0: Now you're part of that department.
1: I am not. I work in the library, but I am a product of the uh, the history department. I have two degrees from Texas. I saw State. that. And so um, when I was doing my my master's in public history, Dr. Jason Millard uh, did, uh, well, I had to write a paper for for a Texas music history class. Okay. And um, everybody else was doing like Willie Nelson and, and, you know, kind of, and I was like, well, I had three people in my mind. I had uh, Miss Lavelle White, Jody Denberg, and uh, Charlie Sexton. All three were customers at uh, the Green Mesquite, where I've worked since 1996. I still work there one day a week. And uh, so Jody came in that afternoon that I got the assignment, and I asked him about Miss Lavelle. He's like, Well, she never really tells you what you want to hear. Right, right. When you interview her. And so I thought, Okay, well, I'll, I'll think on it a little bit more. And later that weekend, Charlie came in, and I asked him about it. He said, Okay, so I wrote this paper for class, and I got an A. I finished the class (laughs) and then uh, when it came time to do another edition of this scholarly journal uh, Dr. Millard approached me about elaborating on the Charlie Sexton article and I talked to Charlie again and he agreed to sit for more interviews Um, I was fortuitous that, that that one did well because actually Bevis read it and thought he liked the style of the of the article. And so that's why he kind of handpicked me to do, I wasn't really, you know, on Dr. Millard's radar at that point, but, uh, it worked out. And actually I, kn- I knew Bevis already. I haven't told this story to anybody else, <laughs> good. but Bevis used to come to eat at green mesquite once in a while. And he had bonded with Tomas, uh, who works there still, uh, Tomas Cardenas. And, uh, you had taken Tomas to see death. I think
2: yeah we we've been on a lot of excursions together because he's a hard rock ac- acolyte yeah you know?
1: well, and we talk music all day long at Green our Street. real
2: bonding we our real bonding though was over um the darkness
1: oh, you and Tomas, yeah. yeah yeah, yeah, well, I mean that's what we do that's what everybody does in every restaurant in Austin is we talk yeah. about music well between the times that we're running food or making yeah. movies but so I knew Bevis, but he didn't know me by name, I don't think so. Uh, when we started making uh, uh, an appointment to to talk about the article, I told Bevis, I was like, what do you say we meet at Green Mesquite? This is all via text or telephone. He's like, oh, that's perfect. That's great. So I went to the restaurant ahead of time. I wasn't working that day. And uh, he came in the door. I was like, hey, Bevis, what's going on, man? How about can Can't make you some tea and he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to meet somebody here." And so I, I, let, I let him go through the whole thing. He's sat in the booth and I'm talking to him and he started to look at his watch He's like, "Well, I'm meeting somebody, but I actually don't know what they look like." And so so I was able to I was able to punk him a little bit. And I was like, I sat I sat down and I was like, "Well, I'm Jason Crouch." And so we had a good laugh about it in the moment and then uh, and then we got down to business. classic. Yeah. And started doing the interviews. That's awesome. So is this the event
0: uh, on the 24th? Is that tied in with the, with the Journal of Texas Music History? Or is it just separate?
1: No, it's most its definitely. Own? It's, it's yeah. to promote it. And again, uh, Dr. Jason Millard will be there. Um,
2: who is the, the host that night? Well, Gene, Gene Fowler. Gene Fowler. Gene Fowler.
1: I know that name.
2: He is a very deep... and He's a very deep... Um, he has a very deep and extensive knowledge in Texas music history. Okay. Um, the The thing that attracted me to Gene was that he's a contemporary of my coterie of friends from the generation that I walked into. So there's a, let's just say, the people that were in Cracker Jack. Right. You know, they were seniors when I would have been in junior high right, school. Right, right. Or... Post-grads, you right, know what I mean? Right. So Gene is like from that era. But he's, I think his roots are in Dallas, Fort Worth area. Okay. So he knew all those guys like the werewolves, that I, people that I would mention like in articles of passing that were influential in the glam scene. Yeah. People like Gary Myrick, you know. Yeah. Who later came to prominence as a solo artist, uh-huh. you know. Uh, but Gary Myrick was, was uh, in a group called Smiley, with uh, my good friend Jimmy Randall who was the bass player that eventually joined Jojo Gunn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, Cracker Jack, you know, had a, a great guitarist named John Stahaley that got uh, cherry-picked to come join the band Spirit. Right. So there was this period around 1971, 1972 where I'm literally starting to see people make a step yeah. from the club scene to the, to the national Yeah. Stage, international yeah. stage, you know what I mean. ZZ Top were already starting to make their noise. Sure, you know what I mean. and But I met Billy Gibbons while I was still in high school.
0: That, well, that was one thing that I found interesting in the article was I didn't I didn't realize that I didn't realize what a, they were. They loomed large for you. ZZ Top.
2: Yeah, they were a big influence. Yeah, uh, in as like. I'll put it this way. I didn't really realize that. You know when you talk about uh, that day where you have like an epiphany sure. and it seems like the lights go on yeah. where you make that, what I call that heartfelt commitment to yourself, like this is the shit that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. It was really the, making that transition as a very young and green and, you know, wobbly, <laughs> you know, drummer. Yeah. In Wichita Falls, Texas. Right, right. Because right. you know how it is, right? you for the uninformed, it's hard to play music until you learn how.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it is real hard. You're right. It's like a weird thing and then all of a sudden you cross a line and you're like, oh, thank God.
2: (laughs) And then it becomes fun to play music because now you have craftsmanship, right? Yeah. Well, it was about that point where the whole confluence of my cognitive ability, right, thinking, oh, I think I can, you know, but you're only as good as the next band that you see right? in your mind. Right, if right. you're a drummer, the whole thing is always a cage match. Right. Because, you know, your biggest fear is you're going to find somebody that's way more talented than you are, has way more chops than you sure. have. And then you go, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what am I going to do, right? Yeah. I don't know. Everybody's journey is similar but different. Right. Right. I spent so many hours alone in the garage in Wichita Falls learning to play drums off of Jimi Hendrix records. Sure. That it took me a while to learn to decompress and start to like settle down and get into my pockets. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Because I was so preoccupied with trying to get these complicated poly poly rhythm yeah, yeah, yeah. things going yeah. on that Mitch Mitchell was doing. Yeah. Right? Because I thought that was what Jimi Hendrix wanted. Yeah. I want to play with Jimi Hendrix. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's, like, right. that's my aspiration. Right. right? I'm right. going, like, I want to play with Jimi Hendrix because, man, he's really going to dig me because yeah, yeah. we kind of look alike. Like, that's <laughs> sort of, th- you know what I mean? Like, oh my God, right. So I was on this mission. Well, I told you one of my earliest friends in Wichita Falls that was really a, 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 a talented musician was Don Bennett, a bass player with you would know Don from Marshall Ball. He uh-huh. was the bassist with Marshall Ball for a, a very long time. You okay. know what I mean? But in a small town like Wichita Falls, there's only a handful of bands, and out of that handful of bands, there's only a handful of people that truly exhibit some sort of, you know, exemplary talent, right? Yeah. So, was Don had this this little three-piece group with a with a, a a blind drummer named Joe Splawn, who happened to be a polymath, meaning he was a multi-instrumentalist. He could play mm-hmm. organ and bass and guitar and drums. Right. But he was blind, like wow. Stevie Wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was this event in the park. There was a guitar player named Danny Humphrey. I'll never forget that. And what struck me with this local little group was that these guys we're playing outtakes from Band of Gypsies. Right. Right? Who knows? By Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies, right? right? At In the park. And it was like a revelation. Yeah. Like, I didn't even know about that album yet. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. I was, I was like, yeah. what is that music that you, you know? they were like, oh, this is Jimi Hendrix. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. we got a new thing. We're connecting the dots, right? When I uh, when I started socializing with that group, yeah, they were kind of already on the local track and they knew who the other bands were, like Front Street Warehouse. Or mm-hmm. There was a regional band that used to tour around the what we call the Texoma area, like North Texas sure. and Southern Oklahoma, called Baby, mm-hmm. and they were kind of like a demonstrative show band, kind of like a Grand Funk Railroad, yeah, type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, and everybody was a buzz about. Baby, you know what I mean? Yeah, they had panache. Yeah, right? yeah. So there was a teen center that opened in the summer of 1971. It's the way I recall because I had graduated from high school and I had come back from Los Angeles temporarily, preparing to go to college, and I had started jamming with my Buddy Jimmy Siraj, that was in my uh, summer school class, because I graduated high school when I was sixteen, and I had a part-time graveyard shift at a FM radio station in Wichita Falls called KNTO, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a it wasn't a designated format because it was literally like midnight till three in the morning.
0: Right. So you just had the freedom to play my whatever you wanted. My job was
2: basically the play these commercials. <laughs>
0: right.
2: Right. Yeah. Put these cassettes in to play these commercials right, right. on time. That right. was like my job. Yeah, yeah. And what I played was nobody gave a damn like what I Right, played. right. Of course. Yeah. So I was playing everything from like Pink Floyd, you know, Yeah. yeah. Gamma to Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Jimi Hendrix records. Yeah. Whatever. I came across this Easy Top Records, Easy Top's first album. Brown Sugar, the song Brown Sugar. I heard that song, I was thinking like, damn, that sounds like John Lee Hooker, kind of, yeah. you know? Because I knew about the blues because my dad was from Mississippi and he was a blues aficionado. He had We had blues records in the house. Plus in the barbershop he owned in Los Angeles, a lot of these blues players would come in and out of this barbershop like a revolving door because it was just the opposite side of the block. Right. So the blues like a second language to me, Right. It was my dad's music, though. It wasn't like my music. Right. It was my dad's music. You found music, yours. Right? Anyway, this easy Top record struck me because I thought, wow, man, the guitar playing is so cool. The drumming is like so cool on this record. So as a drummer, I'm really attracted to any record that's got a really great drummer. You know. Yeah. Cactus with Carmine Appis or yeah. Vanilla Fudge with Carmine Appis. You know, the Who records. I like the, the big, loud, banging you know, busy drummers, you know, yeah. like that was the thing that really uh, intrigued me. Well, this ZZ Top record went in high rotation with me. Yeah. Right? And I was like, man, these guys are funky, man. It's high, really. So lo and behold, that summer, ZZ Top is playing at this bowling alley that had been converted into a teen center called yeah. Kickapoo Canacup. And they came to Wichita Falls. They were pulling a trailer a u-haul trailer in a station wagon i don't know like a can't remember what the vehicle was but it was like a big like a old like a old's 98 right station wagon right, right? wasn't a van it certainly wasn't a bus
0: No, they're doing it in a station wagon yeah yeah you know what i mean <laughs> i'm glad i missed that era that sounds terrible yeah. <laughs> all those bands like that like the beach boys and like the beatles and stuff. they're like yeah man we came here and we drove across america in a station wagon <laughs> yeah. like, jesus christ that sounds terrible yeah.
2: <laughs> so I was all stoked up And it was being promoted By the one We had one cool record store Called Rip Off Records In Wichita Falls And there was one head shop and what stuff?
0: Is that where everyone got like everyone? It was like it was like the the salons of Paris, right? <laughs> That's where everyone with like an open mind that was thinking totally. forward was uh, yes. <laughs> totally. hanging around the black light you know. mushroom posters.
2: <laughs> you get your, get your tickets. Your tickets were like three dollars. Yes. Yeah. you know what I'm saying to see ZZ Top, right? And um, <clears throat> so I went early. Thinking that um, you know maybe maybe we could get a slide as a little opening act or something like that you know at least I was going to go early and see if I could check the band out before it got crowded. Right. I already had that much savvy, right, to know that if you get there early, at least you got a fifty-fifty chance of making a connection. Right. So sure enough, the band was there, and I'm asking around, well, which one is Billy Gibbons and blah blah blah, you know. Cause I'm looking for a black guy,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, you couldn't really tell from the illustration on their debut album. You know what I'm saying? Like no, but the-,
0: the sound of his voice is not like some white dude from Houston. No, but I was no. Look,
2: I'm in my head. I'm looking for a, a, a black musician, right? right? you know there he is like right over there and at this point in time billy was sporting like a really short conservative haircut yeah little little (laughs) spectacles on like john lennon you know what i mean and uh he was clean shaven yeah i use the expression he looked like a there was a lot wichita falls had a famous a popular a very famous uh Air Force Base called Shepherd Field. Right. Shepherd Field. Yeah. So these airmen used to come on weekends for furlough or whatever and come over to the east side of Wichita Falls, you know, looking for action. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And a lot of times they'd get rolled because they just stood out yeah. as like marks. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I was like, man, this this guy looks like an airman, man. Like, what is going on? You know? <laughs> but anyway, I got up the courage and I settled over it in him and I said, yeah, I said, so, you sing for ZZ Top? He's like, yeah, I'm Billy Gibbons. How you doing? Like, you know, and he was just nice, friendly, you know. Yeah. He's looking at me. He goes, one of the first things he says was man, you kind of remind me of Jimi Hendrix. It's like, why did he ever want to say, why did he ever want to say that? You don't say it. <laughs> and then he goes on to tell me that he knew Jimi Hendrix, had toured some with yeah. Jimi Hendrix, and was telling me these stories about him and Jimi Hendrix getting naked after a show, and and they had a bunch of sheets like hung up you know, in a backstage area or whatever, and somebody had like... <clears throat> spray paint and they were supposed to do like these tone paintings and just this eclectic <laughs> stuff. Now with Billy, you, you kinda never know like when he's just like taking you Yeah, yeah out yeah. there. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just like all ears, you know yeah. what I mean? Like with You're Billy one
0: person away from Jimmy Hendrix <laughs> yeah, at this point. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah, yeah.
2: And so um we start talking, I said, Well I said, um uh, He goes, you know where we can get some Mexican food? I was like, yeah, (laughs) you know, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I know. Let's, you know, I'll show you. And we, you know, got in the uh, station wagon, went downtown to this little Mexican restaurant downtown, had that food and got back. And then, of course, now it's getting near showtime, right? And they're going to, they're, they're wrapping up their sound check, so to speak. And he said, well, you know. We got a little drum set. We got a little drum kit set up in the in the backstage area, you know, because it wasn't even a green room, you know. It was like yeah. some utility closet or something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. But he said, "You know, you know how to play a shuffle like that sort of thing." I said, "Yeah, I think so." You know, <laughs> you know. So I'm. I'm shuffling along with billy and he's just warming up and going through some riffs and this that and the other this thing probably took about maybe three or four minutes you know what i mean yeah. like in one key no changes you right know what right and just he's just using me like a metronome something right. like that he goes well i gotta get ready for the show you know he says so um you gotta give us some space and we gotta get yeah. our act together so i go out into the audience and i'm all psyched you know because i've just had this little yeah three minute jam with the Guitar player, I'm feeling special, you know. And then, after t- 30 minutes or so, go lights go down, it's time for the show. Now, he is transformed into like a superhero, yeah. Right? Yeah, now he's wearing like this matching Wrangler jack, I mean, yeah. Wrangler, you know, shirt and shirt and jeans together, and he's got this really cool cowboy hat Stetson hat you know what I'm saying he's got these sunglasses you know what I mean he's taking on a completely different persona and when they crank up I swear it sounded like a 747 had landed inside that building
0: that's awesome
2: I'd never heard a sound like that yeah and it just you know seared my brain yeah (laughs) you know what I mean yeah because it was just so great yeah. So way, super much better than anything that I had ever seen live in my life. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, I love that feeling.
2: And then, not more than a month or so after that, the band Trapeze from England came to Wichita Falls with Glenn Hughes. We, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Later yeah. became the yeah. Basis, yeah. basis with Deep Purple. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I love Glenn Hughes. But they, they had this, their second album was this album called Medusa. Uh-huh. And for some reason it became like a staple in the Texas music collection. Oh, really? You went to everybody's house. Everybody had a copy of the Medusa. Well, it turns out that they had actually set Austin up as a base camp when they started. They were signed to London Records the same as ZZ Top. Oh, okay. Bill Hamm was the promoter for Trapeze. Oh, I didn't know that. Right? And so Trapeze were working the same circuit as ZZ Top until they would eventually catch national attention from England. Yeah. Right? London Records was their, I'm sorry, th- uh, well yeah, it was their 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 sublabel was called Threshold. They were discovered by John Lodge of the Moody Blues. Uh huh. And reportedly, like Led Zeppelin were huge fans of Trapeze. Like John Bonham really loved like Dave Holland's drumming. Oh, that's cool. And you know, Jimmy Page really loved Glenn Hughes, Glenn Hughes bass playing and singing. What's, what's significant about them or what, what struck me was that they were funky. They were like funky Right, men. yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Be, before. They That's were, what
0: con- I feel like Glenn brought to, they were cont- to, to they were, Deep they were, Purple. Deep
2: Purple, yeah. They were actually contemporaries of Led Zeppelin. They started at about the same right, time. Right, right, You know what right. I mean? But the, and were three piece, right? they were a three-piece, right? They were a three-piece. They started as a five-piece and then they, their debut was a five-piece and they reduced to a three piece and I think that that was just due to the fact that by then you know the three piece concept had really gelled and people understood how much you could do with three pieces Yeah, you know what I mean so Mel Galley was their guitar player Glenn Hughes on bass and vocals that band did an in store at Rip Off Records in Wichita Falls right and they were nice and personable you know what I mean it wasn't no you know it was, sure, they were they were like the people's the people's champs. Yeah, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. They came to play that gig, Johnny, and I'm telling you, it was like nothing that I had ever seen before. You know, because their their attack was like metal, metal.
0: Yeah, you know what oh, I yeah, mean. Yeah, kick they ass. They were
2: playing through like three high watts <laughs> on this side and. <laughs> four SVTs on yeah. that side yeah, yeah. you know what I yeah. mean and
0: they're moving air
2: that shit was like face melting yeah and they were funky yeah so those two events in close proximity to each other kind of like instilled in me like okay now that is the way that it's supposed to be done yeah and everything else kind of paled in comparison until I saw Cracker Jack
0: right let's change this stuff yeah um let me ask you real quick. Sorry to bounce back to this, but there's a, there's a couple of things I did not get. If someone wants a physical copy of this, where like Waterloo, where do you get no, this? No, no, you um, you, have you to can order appeal
1: it? directly to the uh, to the department, and they'll send you one. Okay, um, I'll
0: put the link to the website uh, to that. Your uh, yeah,
1: they'll mail you one. You can get it on the mailing list and get it every year. Oh, you don't have to sign subscribe up. or anything like that. Um, they have back issues. But they do post them online, and uh, Bevis said that it's, it's online now since February 1. Yeah, so the there's, article there's the, in its entirety with the images,
0: yeah, which are the images are, are, are really awesome, they're you, superb. You, you, Bevis, like, uh, you, do, I mean, do you, are there more of these photos? Like, do you have a giant shoebox or something <laughs> like a big box of like because it. Also, you, you were the you, coolest looking guy in all of Austin music history.
2: You know, well, thank you so much. That's that's very kind of you to say so much. No, you so, are. But, uh, but all the eras. You and Stevie. But all the eras. The, the little girls understood that. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you asked me a question, though. My sister passed away just recently and I'm I found sorry. a complete treasure trove of, you know, pretty rare photos from... Various eras, because she was a real, you know...
1: She kept her stuff. She,
2: Yeah, she kept it, you know. Um, that collection that I shared with Jason was just stuff that uh, I had managed to salvage. Unfortunately, I had a really devastating house fire in 1979. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, during the era when Raoul's was just starting. Uh-huh. And I lost, like, all my worldly goods um, in a fire. Yeah. So it's you know before the digital era it's right. real hard to recapture those things but what i'm hoping is uh, with the advent of the internet once i can get to a point i can actually start to put some blast out yeah for people that might have like miscellaneous photographs yeah. from the good old prehistoric that's, days that's that's
0: <laughs> one of the nice surprises on uh on social media someone will post something and there's your cassette from 1993 or whatever mm-hmm. sure yeah
2: yeah, my 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 current endeavor right now is to uh, I've been working to really kind of uh, generate uh, enough significant regional press, uh, let's just say notoriety in terms of to display public interest to a publisher for my for a book for my book, yeah, memoirs of a Black Rock Maverick. Yeah, but I've been working on that for roughly four years with another colleague. Dr. Thomas Stanley from George Mason University in Washington, oh, D.C. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think I sent you an, I may have sent you the outline for the book. I don't know if I did or not, but uh, we've, you know, we've got like a, a, what you call like a syllabus. Uh,
1: an outline? Yeah, it's,
2: uh, it's a chapter outline. Okay. You know? And the other side of that coin is I don't want this story to just kind of fall into the margins. Sure. Strict academia. Yeah. You know, I really feel like I've got a story that is not only entertaining but enlightening. Yeah. At a emotional and spiritual level. Sure. You know, because uh, it's kind of similar in, in one respect to like the concept of Cameron Crowe's book, uh, Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about the fame and the celebrity, it's about the pursuit of happiness, you know, that I was endeavoring, right? Sure. I literally went into the music business because it was the option that best suited me psychologically. Right. And I, I, I was just really encouraged by the fact that you could reach such a broad spectrum of people through music, you know, as opposed to just being an athlete. Right. I mean, I'm kind of hardwired for competition. Yeah. And, uh, had I been gifted, you know, with a different type of physicality, I probably would have been
0: a, in sports. Yeah, you know yeah.
2: what I mean, because
0: yeah, this <laughs> Bevis Griffin in the seventies was not a fucking sports star right. <laughs> as a little dude. He weighed probably like ninety three pounds. <laughs>
2: I, yeah, bro, you know, I don't, I don't think I really started to gain like muscle until I was about twenty three or twenty four years old. You yeah, know? I literally went into bodybuilding regimen oh really yeah because for the longest time i was asthmatic oh really when i was a child growing up in los angeles pre-epa yeah the smog had me kind of under duress you know what i mean so when i'm one of the that's one of the good byproducts of moving to texas was that it alleviated my asthmatic condition right And then, so I'm considered like a late bloomer, you know? Sure. And I was going, I went into what I call my ugly duckling phase. So instead of being, you know, this little scrawny lightweight kid, I decided I was going to get into like the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And sure enough, you know, muscle started to pop up, you know what I mean? And I was using it also to augment like my drumming in terms of just like stamina and power. Yeah. I took an athletic approach to that. Yeah. The one of the things that really kind of curtailed my drumming trajectory was that I saw the great Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin mm-hmm. and the incredible Billy Cobham yeah. on drums. Yeah, and Billy was built just like a a linebacker. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. huge bicep. Hundred percent. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? yeah. And was just the most amazing percussionist. Yeah, and it just kind of made me just wilt.
0: Yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah. his
2: skill set was just so far. Above what, anything that I could have, I understood how guitar players felt the first time they saw Jimi Hendrix.
0: Right. I can't, it, I can't do this. It was that. <laughs> yeah, that guy's doing something I'll never be able to do. <laughs> it yeah. was
2: that, right? Yeah. So it was Steve M- Metter, the guitarist of the werewolves, oh, yeah. who really kind of planted the seed. Like, Bev, you should, you should consider singing. You got a really good voice. You really know how to dress. Girls like you. If I were you,
1: I think about yep, to the front. It, that
2: sort of thing. You know,
1: you were singing in Franklin's. Yeah, because I was singing some, in Franklin's. Right? Yeah, right. I was and you did have some lead vocals, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: we were we were kind of like a trading uh, it off. Yeah, we were kind of like a uh, kind of like a tag team type thing. Jimmy was the principal frontman per se, but I would you know sing lead on songs because I was into people like Don Brewer from Grand Front Railroad. Yeah, definitely, I was into Buddy Miles. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. like s- tremendous. At that, you yeah, know, drumming and singing, you yeah. know. I mean, the band that I really liked the most out of the British Invasion at first was the Dave Clark Five because it, Dave Clark had like the double bass drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know
1: what I mean? Was, yeah. And wow, they set he, him in front. He's
2: got two bass drums, yeah. And he was right up front. Yeah, so you know what I mean. I mean, Ringo was cool, but he was no Dave Clark. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. no, Ringo. <laughs> Ringo's, Ringo's sort of like appreciation trajectory took until about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like most people started going like, oh no, no, he's really good.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Charlie Watts. Same kind yeah. of thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, people like oh
0: God, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That that those those guys are are rhythm aces. What uh are you are you are you doing any management now? Are you working with anyone?
2: Well, to be honest with you, I'm not. I'm kind of I'm kind of in a holding pattern because i most recently had gone, as you well know, had gone into a series of endeavor with education through the School of Rock. Right, right. Right? And that was really illuminating for me because I found out it really was something that I was passionate about. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just being able to work up close, because you do it, you yeah. know, being able to close work up close and personal with, with uh, young talents is a, is a blessing, you yeah. know? And to be honest with you, Johnny, you know, I say this with all humility, you know. I got close enough to the sun to grab that brass ring. It wasn't in the cards for me for a multiplicity of just reasons. You know what I'm saying? It took me down a dark path of depression for a few years because I'd gotten so close when I was in this record record deal situation with Jack Douglas and EMI Records. I mean, with Jack Douglas. Yeah. Right? One of my favorite producers. My producer, the producer of the Aerosmith records yeah. were, were like a cornerstone of inspiration to yeah. me, you know, and and of course his great work with John Lennon and, you know, Cheap Trick and myriad others. I yeah. mean, he was the engineer on the New York Dolls debut album. Yeah. You know what I mean? So my point was it had taken me seven years to navigate my way to a position of capability to where I attracted yeah not- notice of that magnitude. Right. You dig what I mean? And... and the cards were, I've told you the story before, but the yeah, cards yeah. were on the table and everything was all set. And it looks like I was just going to make this big leap into the national stage, you know. And then it didn't happen. And that in confluence, you know, with a personal tragedy where, you know, my father was killed in a gun accident or a gun incident with with my mother. You know what I'm saying? And this whole thing, the whole two things collided. yeah so unfortunately in close proximity to each other that it just was almost unbearable yeah you know I understand that so you know it took me down some some rough roads with regards to you know just uh, substances and things of that nature because I really had a had difficulty getting my head <clears throat> focused on the truth
0: sure like exactly right.
2: why did this happen and there was a, and again it was clouded with, you know, uh, managerial malfeasance. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And it just got so murky. Yeah. And it's just difficult to talk about it. Yeah. So I internalized it, you know, and it took a good, I'm going to say it took a good, you know, four years for me to just start to see vestiges of daylight, you know. It wasn't until I was doing this project with uh, Stephen Doster um, to kind of benefit Alejandro Escovedo called The Cosmopolitans. Mm -hmm. Because Alejandro had an unfortunate incident where his, yeah. you know,
0: his... The uh, Well, it wasn't no?
2: that. No, his, 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 his girlfriend. Oh, friend, right. I remember. She know, had killed had, herself. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And he had, they had small children in the house. Yeah, yeah. So some of us cronies, you know, had decided we were going to bond together and try to help our friend. And then that kind of brought Alejandro to the forefront. And this is where he started debuting some of the material that would produce his first solo album on Water Watermelon Records. Right, right. Uh, the best thing that happened out of all of that for me was that I met my wife.
0: That's awesome.
2: At Steamboat, at one of the debut shows of that series. I met
0: my ex-wife at Steamboat.
1: And uh, <laughs> I met my wife at Steamboat. <laughs> 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 it's like a club. Richard also didn't meet uh, Richard Weissman. No, brother.
0: in college they met. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. in Houston at Steamboat. Yeah.
2: So that's that's funny. Isn't it? <laughs> so, so that was that was a pivot point, you know. That's when things started to start to move in a positive yeah. direction, so yeah. to speak. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Yeah, it, there's a there's a tremendous relief when I mean there's something about going for the brass ring that that I I believe is is worth it, and everyone should definitely try to take their thing as far as they can. That come down is really hard, but the, when you wake up and you're like, oh shit, I can still make music and do whatever I want, and well, not. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. So <laughs> you
0: know, no one took anything away from me. Right. You know what I mean?
2: No, I mean you know your 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 ego and your pride you know, right. will certainly put you into some awkward psychological spaces. It's
0: also everything is 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 one in a million. Like oh, yeah. like getting a record deal is one in a million. Then once you get that record deal, if your record even comes out, that's another one in a million. You know what I mean? And if if you get to go on the road, and you know, like it's all just one in a million. <laughs> and you you know luck sometimes very yeah i was just somebody was i was being interviewed yesterday by a young person talking about like that very thing about music and i was like it's really interesting because it really isn't you can be the best you can you can put all the hard work you want you can you spend your life dedicated to this thing and just a, a it's there in front of you about to happen and then something happens that has nothing to do with anything that you've None of the work that you put has nothing to do with it. Total total outside and everything's gone in just a second and it evaporates. It's pretty weird. Yeah. On all levels, like all the way, like you've been getting a deal like and then all of a sudden your manager disappears because no one told you your record's doing terribly. You so know? the
2: interesting part of the book is, the, is, is what I call the climb out of that hole. Getting back to a point of vitality. Right. Getting back to a point of solid self-esteem without being self-aggrandizing, right. right? I had the benefit of, I mean, I've had 14 significant projects over the course of my life. Sure. You know, So it wasn't like I, that thing just destroyed me. You no. You know what I'm saying? It just set me off on a different trajectory. Yeah. And I use the expression, as we, as we say in Jamaica, Jossie and no. You know, like God sees everything, you know what I'm saying? And there's, yeah. a, there's a cause and a reason in every season. Exactly. Know? So what you have to do is just find You're a North Star and put yourself in a position to be as receptive to good energy and be able to exhibit good energy in all your daily interactions. It's the little things that really make people happy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So going back to what I was talking about, School of Rock, per se, right? Like working with a youngster that may look at me with a certain Elon, you know? I'm I'm quick to let them know it's like bro you know I'm I'm itchy and scratchy just like you are you know what I mean it's like we're we're all feeling the same experience in this in this lifetime and I want you to know that yes it is beautiful to see people rich famous driving around in expensive cars and flying around in private planes that's a beautiful thing does not necessarily mean that they are happy
0: that's exactly right yeah still you
2: you know what I mean? Yeah. So, all I can say is, I'm writing a document of my experience. Yeah. Hopefully, it will get to a point to where it'll at least attract the attention of some individual that will find some significance
1: right. and
2: reward to that, the way that I received significance and reward from other individuals that have told me of their trials and tribulations and, you know, successes and perceived sure. failures. I mean, I think the only failure is not trying, to be honest with you. That's exactly you're, right. You're not yeah. really failing if you're trying. No. You know what I mean? No, and this,
0: this isn't up. It, it's like so much of it isn't up to us, you know, as far as like the big world and trying to be a brass ring, fly close to the sun kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was going to ask you guys, speaking of your, of your book, have you guys, do you guys, there was a book that came out last year at the end of last year called The Curious Mix of People. Like Greg Beats and Richard Weimark wrote this book about like the, the indie punk rock scene that was happening like uh, at uh emo's and, and hole in the wall and mm-hmm. these other places. And there's a back room documentary that uh oh, that. is in the process of trying to get the music cleared for it that Ray Seger and uh this other dude did. I'm drawing a blank on his name, but there's a great Saxon pub documentary. And uh are you are, have you guys like is there any in the Texas music history, uh, the Journal of Texas Music History? Are they getting involved in trying to? Because like, there's no Steamboat documentary. But let me can I ask you one? question sorry, sure. sorry. Do you remember the guy that was making the documentary about Steamboat while it was still open?
1: <clears throat> I remember.
0: <laughs> it's hard that, to remember stuff. It is hard that to happened remember inside stuff. of that building.
1: <laughs> right, it is. It's true. Um, Danny's son, Sean. Sean, yeah. He. I saw him somewhere, and it's probably been, it's been more than a decade ago.
0: Okay.
1: He told me that there was something in the works. I feel like that was even like a sample 20-minute.
0: So do I. I yeah. feel like I remember it, that.
1: I feel like he even gave me a DVD that had like a proposal wow. for it or something. But where that is in my menagerie, if I still have it, is a mystery. Yeah. Um, I used to see Sean on Facebook once in a while, but I haven't lately. He
0: works at uh, South Austin Music. He's my godson.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, Just excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, haven't, I haven't ducked into South Austin Music in decades. The proprietor came in the Green heat not too long ago. and We had a Bill? really jovial talk. What was it? His... Oh, Bill okay. Walker. Yeah.
0: yeah, he's a great dude, man. <clears throat>
1: um, but, yeah, I mean, why isn't there something about the black cat, you know? Why yeah. isn't there something, you know? Well, it's of, not about why. I mean,
0: it's just a matter of somebody taking the initiative to but, do it from that scene. But there's which is no hard.
1: time like the present because yeah. resources are lost all the time. That's right. Whether there are people you can talk to or whether it's somebody's shoebox full of photos, you right, know, right. or someone's VHS tape because they're like, ah, you know, they're going to toss it out. Stuff like that gets lost all the time, just speaking from a historians and archivists' point of view. And it's unfortunate. But um, I think that the rise in popularity of podcasts is some of the greatest places to capture some of that human memory. Yeah. And to hopefully dovetail it with, you know, whatever media people still have underneath their bed or in their attic or whatever it may be. Um, So... Uh, i'm sorry that was there was a question in there originally (laughs)
0: um no i was just i was like i I was just i'm i'm very excited about the idea of that and the steamboat one like i'm a little i don't really go like hey why don't why don't someone start making it because i don't want to do it right i don't
1: (laughs) want to have to do it no i I don't
0: want to have to do a bunch of stuff i'll (laughs) be interviewed for it happily but i don't want to make a movie (laughs) put
1: it all together um before I stopped by Bevis's house this morning, I stopped by the Austin History Center, which does have some of your collections, right? Mm-hmm. Photographs
2: in particular? Yeah, they got great ephemera over there of me.
1: Excellent, so, man. I need to check that out. For many years, they've been trying to move from the Austin History Center, which is the historic first downtown main library, into. The Falk building, which was like the 70s and 80s main downtown Okay, yeah, yeah. Their, the att- intention was for more than a decade for them to move all the stuff into that building so that they'd have room. Because th- there's stuff just stacked up in there. It looks like a, a mad... Lab, sure. you know, laboratory. Uh,
0: they need a curator.
1: They need well, they, they and they they or, kind of blow through some staff. I I can't speak uh, to that because I've never worked down there. But <laughs> the plan was to move into the Fock building, which would be great because they'd have room. They'd have modern electricity, at least an air conditioner, HVAC, whatever. You know, to, re, to you got because some old stuff needs very specific you know environments to be preserved. Yeah. I drove by there this morning. I thought by now it'd be done, and it wasn't. Both buildings were blocked off with fencing, and, mm. and so I don't know what they're doing. I I don't know anybody that works there now personally, but that is the great repository for you know uh, things from recent history that people are going to want to look at, not yeah. just to remember, but future researchers that want to know. Why is Austin the live music capital of the world, et cetera, whatever? Right. We need to have some sort of basis for people to look at and understand.
0: I know why. I found out a month ago from a guest sitting in that chair, Nancy Coplin. She was the one that came up with that
1: the live music capital yeah, of the world yeah. yeah well it was a great yeah. motto you
0: know some people hate her for it it's pretty awesome well, <laughs> you know. i love i love how controversial that is like i can't get a gig and this is supposed to be the live music right. capital of the world and my thing is always like what if you suck yeah like i'm sorry right <laughs>
1: like <laughs> I, I i've looked at all that stuff from both both sides yeah you know i'm i'm able to do that enough because i'm analytical enough that i I can embrace it, but I can also see the 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 cracks in the the facade. You know? Sure.
0: I mean, there's a there's uh, you know, man. I, I feel like there a lot of that. The controversy that comes with that is the expectation that people put on it. Like, what what else do you want it to do? We we've, we've got like healthcare for musicians here. We've got mental healthcare for musicians oh, here. The fuck else do you incredible. want? Right. <laughs> like, this isn't a welfare state. It's the music business. Well, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, go work for it. Like, go fight for it. That's a tough you, thing. You and I, I are. I feel like people are spoiled you here. You
2: and I are on the same real estate. Yeah, know? I mean, because I think those are great this things. This is all I'm saying. My, and I, I really don't love sounding like grandpa. Neither do I. The whole idea is like, <laughs> back in the day, you had to be good at your yeah. craft yeah to get onto the stage, yeah. let alone what would happen after the fact. Yeah. Right? it's just a matter of just getting onto a stage with a spotlight on you required a certain level of accomplishment. Yeah. Now it's all subjective to a certain point in time, but I can I can almost give you a, what I call a earmark. In my opinion, the whole thing started to slide sideways in the wake of the punk era because the bar got lowered significantly you know, with the idea of the aesthetic of it's DIY, everybody can participate. Yeah. Right? Like, now, now, don't get me wrong.
0: The great stuff came out of that too. I participated
2: yeah. in, that, in that era just as vigorously as I did in the glam era. Sure. Just as vigorously as I did for myself trying to go to what they considered to be like the arena. Right. But that's my point. Right. I'm moving up in weight classes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. By the time I'm in New York, I'm up. With Van Halen and Bon Jovi and Motley Crue, right? You know what I'm saying? it's yeah. like these are my competitors yeah. in my mind when I'm in at the record plant with Jack Douglas. Yeah, ACDC is down the hall. Yeah, Santana is upstairs. This is the real deal. Yeah, you you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I use that as a frame of reference, saying it took me ten years. Right. Right. A hard, steady labor. Sure. And, and discerning not just external critique, but self-critique, yeah. right? Because you're, what you're looking for is an, is an identity. It's like when I had a conversation with Phil Line from from Thin Lizzy. He was saying, the thing that you have to bear in mind is that the record company is very reflexive to trends and yeah. successes. Yeah. And you don't want to fall into a pitfall of being one of several in a certain type of stylistic idiom. yeah, You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's only one Jimi Hendrix, there's only one Sly Stone, there's only one David Bowie, there's only one, you know, yeah. fill in the blank. But they're, they're looking gonna, for the
0: next, But they're looking last for the thing. facts, yeah. what
2: we call the the simulacra, yeah. the, the, the facsimile, right? Because that happened in Los Angeles big time.
0: Oh yeah, that, that to me is the thing that differentiates Austin. Is that this has been a cultivate. Uh, this has been a scene cultivated of outsiders. Like the the just starting with those cosmic country guys. Those were guys that weren't allowed to play in this because they were too fucking weird to be in <laughs> in Nashville. And then like into the into the eighties, like people from the Raúl scene. And, and what ended up happening afterwards with like Daniel Johnston and like Tim those are weird fucking bands. Like, those are weird. <laughs> and like, you can't do that, like, really in LA, cause you're, you gotta be whatever the last thing was, the next of that.
2: You gotta check a box. That makes,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? That's one of the things that I've always found is really unique about here is you don't, you're, no one, you can get your thing together here and yeah. and have support and not really be judged.
2: Well, it's also the thing that you really that Austin really has in my opinion has in common with, with markets like New Orleans and even New York City to that aspect because yeah. what the thing that I really enjoyed about the 7 8 years that I was in New York was the eclecticism at the grassroots level. Sure. Yeah. Right? Like I saw things that never would see, you know, broad public public awareness that were just fascinating on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, And you got to think about that. I mean, you know, New York and London and Los Angeles in that respect have always kind of been considered the genesis of every major trend in pop culture. Yeah. Right? The thing that intrigued me about Austin, especially from a historical standpoint, was the fact that I became aware of the fact that Austin had uh, a bedrock or a, 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 a small tight-knit community of like free-thinking beats, like yes. beatnik yeah, yeah, yeah. students yeah. in the 60s, you know what I'm saying? And as a result of that, I think it was, it was culminated just due to the fact that the University of Texas had a really high reputation for a law school yeah that was half the price of the Ivy League schools. Right, right. And you had a lot of East Coast students that, that kind of transplanted that that uh, cultural mentality here, right? Yeah. So when you talk to people from like the era of Jim Franklin... Right. You know, and uh, um, Chet Himes, mm-hmm. you know, like Chet Himes moved to San Francisco and he was the one that was like the direct competitor to Bill Graham in the Fillmore East. Oh, really? The family dog. Yeah. That's how Janis Joplin got transplanted to San Francisco. Wow, I didn't know that. You also have to yeah. appreciate that the first truly psychedelic band that appeared in San Francisco was not from San Francisco. It was the thirteenth floor elevators from Houston. Right.
0: Right? Yeah. Those yeah, are yeah. the
2: guys that kinda of opened the eyes of Jerry Garcia and yeah. you know, the, the the people from Quicksilver Messenger Service and You, you know Song. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. They were looking at that like, oh this is this is this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? There's a guy yeah. playing an electric jug. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? yeah and of course Rocky Erickson's voice yeah is well documented as being songs too a heavy Some great song on Robert Plant you yeah I was like but my point being it's that it's that sister city synergy between yeah. Austin and San Francisco has yeah. always existed right there at the at the genesis of the poster movement yeah. right with people like uh, Kelly Mouse or Kelly and Mouse Glenn, Robert, Glenn Shelton. You know, the guy that did, did like, the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and all of that. Right, yeah. All of those guys were, like, ping-ponging it back and forth between Austin and San Francisco. So, you know, Jim Franklin, God bless him, you know, was a fine arts uh, savant, right? Like, this guy, when you talk about the the concept of, like, photorealistic art, Mm -hmm. he had that talent. Yeah. Right? To where he... Was at a Da Vinci level of
0: some of those art- guys really were artistic yeah. capability. Yeah.
2: I'm telling you, Jim. I just know because I know these this older clique of people that right. were boots on the ground when it was a small thing, right? Before the Vulcan Gas Company was a right, thing. right. The Vulcan Gas Company was apparently like a little commune, you know. Right. It was like a co-op. Yeah. Yeah. They right there on between third and fourth on Congress, right. I know about it well because Johnny. Uh, uh, Johnny Winter was was, was a, had a residency there Tommy Shannon you know right. basically yeah, yeah. one of my best friends and he's the guy that really kind of tucked me under his wing and let me be a fly on it's the wall it's a great
0: photo of you guys in that in your article yeah well Tommy yeah. I gave a tremendous how's quote. he doing
2: I believe he's doing well okay. he's okay. just a little on the reclusive side yeah. you know what I'm saying I don't I I mean, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so I don't know what else he would want to go out for. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like you get to it. Tommy Shannon's the only person I know that's been, like, famous three three times. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because he was with Johnny Winter when Johnny Winter was, like, the biggest signing in record label history. Yeah. 1968, 69. Right? Yeah. I mean, Tommy played Woodstock.
0: I know.
2: I mean, they, whatever the three years that 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 unit were together as a yeah. Columbia act, you know, they did everything that you could do in the world of being a... a Matt, Led Zeppelin was their opening act. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Jesus.
2: <laughs> you know, it's like crazy.
0: Yeah, right? that's insane.
2: And then you think about... Um, then you think about the the work that he did, uh, you know, with Stevie Vaughan. Yes. You know, I mean, in retrospect, and you got to appreciate from my point of view it's a little bit skewed because stevie was a real good buddy of mine like we were like running buddies yeah you know we were we were thick you know what i mean yeah we all and what we had was that Personal connection to Jimi Hendrix, right? Yeah, he liked that. He liked that I liked Jimi Hendrix, and I liked that he liked Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, and we just liked. Jimmy you both Hendrix. dressed like him. We both, <laughs> we both liked <laughs> Jimi <laughs> Hendrix together. Yeah. Except Stevie really could play. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> I'm Saying yeah, like that, yeah, right? Yeah. But even when um, he came into ascension, as I had moved to New York, whenever he would come to New York to do whatever big event, I was one of the few people that he would just call. Routinely, hey man, I'm at Carnegie Hall. You want to come yeah, down yeah, here? Yeah. You know, yeah. Hey man, I'm doing the Letterman show or whatever. You want yeah. to come down? Yeah. I'm at the Hit Factory or whatever's going on. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And that is the thing that really made me feel like I was gonna take that next step because one of my best buddies had taken that step and right. I had a tangible, sure. yeah. What I call bird's eye view of what it looks like from that side of the table, right?
0: The, yeah. I remember having that that thing happen during that Steamboat time, like fucking Sister 7 get signed, Bob's Band got signed, Vallejo got signed, Push Monkey got signed, mm. and I was like, what the fuck am I doing wrong in this fucking world? Spoon got signed, 16 Deluxe got signed, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And <laughs> then finally we did, but it, it everyone had a disastrous experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except spoon, yeah. <laughs> Except the dudes that were playing at the hole in the wall,
1: right?
2: Spoon yeah. opened for Mike Ben one fell swoop. At, oh, really? At the Electric Lounge.
0: That's awesome. So
2: I I remember that because I mean the the thing about me was I was I, I took this I took this attitude to where I was going to be much more flexible.
0: Is that like mid nineties? Sorry. Yeah. It yeah. Was okay. Early nineties. Like, Ninety four. Ninety three. Ninety yeah, yeah, four. Yeah. 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 I
2: mean making that first step when I came back I made my I made my re-entry to music through Danny Freeman and Chill Factor right right which kind of took me down a slightly different trajectory because now I'm not presenting myself in the hard rock milieu milieu, so to speak right right I've taken a slight departure and I'm doing this thing that has more Oh yeah, you
0: of, talked about it in the article about like a grunge. Well, more of a, no, it was or,
2: like it was like a it was like a high energy R and B okay thing. You know what I mean? Because it was Denny Freeman, Silver oh, right, 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 Brown okay. and George Rains. Okay. And they were kinda like the they were like the fixture rhythm section or the, the fixture house band for Antones at yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Denny wanted to take a a departure from Antones. He wanted to move into a direction that was a little less blues restrictive or blues idiosyncratic. And I just had this attitude where I just thought about it like Pete Townsend, like maximum R&B. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, let's just take you and all you got to do is turn that guitar up about three more decibels. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're accustomed to and let me do the rest because I'm just going to take it to, you know, rock and roll land. Right, yeah, and yeah. This you got. You're standing on a rock solid foundation with Sarah Brown jo- yeah. and George Reigns. Yeah, right, yeah, so yeah, how, yeah. How bad yeah. could it go? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's like Iggy Pop with James Brown's band.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: <laughs> it's like that sort of thing, right? Well, my point was. I thought taking, you were going to
0: say with Hunt and Tony. But I didn't know who you were going to say but, when you said Iggy. Pop. By
2: taking by <laughs> taking that step, it kind of broadened my um, exposure, right? Because. Denny already had a following, right? you know, and, and, and his credibility, his musical credibility came unquestioned un or unchallenged, right? So all of that kind of washed on, on me, right? right? It kind of elevated me in a sense as far as at the local level, right? It's like, yeah. oh, wow, you're playing with Denny Freeman. Like, oh, my God. Right, you know, right. How did, you, how did you do that? Like, that sort of thing. So what I'm saying was from that point on, I never said no to anything else that came across the table.
0: Right, so what was the thing you were doing? Because I, re- I remember being at Steamboat and I remember being like but downstairs was, and you coming down and talking to Danny and like me and Richard just sitting there stoned on the couch while you guys talked about you it playing a by something. that
2: time, uh, I don't know, see, by, it took a little bit of time. After the chill factor dissipated, then I went back to rock and I had this group called One Fell Swoop.
0: Okay, that's the band.
2: Okay. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Vallejo, Open for one fell swoop at Steamboat. At Steamboat, okay. The first time I ever heard that. Right. It you.
0: might have been you know, right when they moved to town. Yeah. Yeah. Was, they, they, were yeah.
2: Brand, they were brand spanking, <laughs> you know. Uh, but Danny had always been supportive.
0: Sure. And, well, everyone, I feel like everyone was. I remember, I remember you like coming back on the scene and I, I didn't know who you were but you're all of a sudden like you were back. Like there was a, hey man, Bevis is back. Hey, Bevis is coming down. Like I remember that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it
2: was really nice uh, because like I said before, I mean, I, I I was just tra- trying to, to crawl through some emotional detritus, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That really had me stifled because I, at the, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I felt embarrassed.
0: Sure. I, do. I know that, I, 100% I know that feeling. You're like, I'm sorry, guys. I know you thought I was going to, yeah.
2: You know what I'm I mean? I'm not Bono. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I felt embarrassed because I didn't have a, a solid rationale as to how it. All went, of course, south, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I didn't find out, and I write about it in the book, but I didn't really find out what the threads of the real issue were until it's like 2009.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like being raped,
0: yeah, I know exactly. I, yes, you're you exactly know, no, right. I, I don't, I, I don't know what it's like to actually be raped, but to emotionally. and spiritually raped yes yes not to buy yeah 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 Yeah. it's dramatic yeah i mean it is it it it, you know i I wish there was a different word to use but there is that sentiment that feeling of being violated thank you and being ripped off from the inside of you yeah it sucks
2: yeah so i had to go through going back to my meeting my wife before i really settled into a committed relationship with her I, I, i went through anger management therapy for about 6 months you know to at least start to open up and yeah. and express and and not just internalize these things but put these grizzly things on the table right. you know what I'm saying because I'm you know I'm not trying to be hyperbolic about it but I was borderline suicidal for a little while
0: there's that feeling I mean you know I just watched a documentary a couple of days ago about this band called uh, Material Issue from Chicago oh yeah really great band from the and that guy like. I he,
2: know that documentary you're talking about
0: they did three records and the third one did really badly and that guy just killed himself and you're like Jesus Christ dude like it's just rock and roll yeah. <laughs> but when you're in it it's your fucking life because you've been working on it your whole life.
2: See, that's and what... And someone that, takes it from you is what, what it feels like. That's what happened with uh, David Hackney from the band Death, you know? the original Exactly, brother, exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I mean, I just use that as an example because it's well documented by, by the brothers. Yeah. It's not me just talking out of school. Sims. You know?
0: Fucking Sims. You know, that, you know, they likely something good came out of that to make a foundation so we don't lose any more of us to that shit.
2: But, you know, what what could we have done to to, to save him? You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, I mean, not to name drop and get off all down that, that weird weird alley, you know, but uh, I met that singer from NXS.
0: Yeah, Michael Hutchins. Michael
2: Hutchins, you know, and we had a conversation that was really kind of enlightening. Yeah. We were at Eartha Kitt's house in Hollywood. <laughs> wow. Don't ask. No. <laughs> but we were at Eartha Kitt's house in Hollywood at this function, you know. And somehow, you know how it is when you start rubbing shoulders. Yeah. We just wound up in a corner together and started talking, you know. And it kind of went from, hey, man, I really dig your shoes to... <laughs> yeah. Hey man, I'm thinking about jumping off a, of a bridge.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> you, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, 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 You know what I mean. Yeah,
2: and I'm thinking like Jesus Christ. You know, you want to trade places? Yeah,
0: hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I
1: guarantee you, I'll
2: yeah. take I'll take your life.
0: Yeah, wear well, like, your
1: shoes. <laughs> right. <now. laughs> like
0: well, you know what's shoes. interesting, and I, I didn't read I didn't I didn't have the good fortune to read your Charlie Sexton article, but 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 it seems like that that's a guy that that went through all of that stuff and a hundred percent yeah. like, he, and really uh, uh, he's like a good example of what you can do with your uh, perceived career failures, right? Cause they're not failures. Yeah. He went for it. I mean, in the, the bean counters at MCA, yes, <laughs> but, but in the world of like uh soul and spirit, that guy has won the, that guy's, he, he's the, He's the greatest. Well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like he r- rise from the flames like that and redefine himself in this way of being like this amazing sort of like overseer of creation and people that Bob Dylan and Elvis Costello are like, I, dude, his name's in like it's Elvis Costello and the Imposters featuring Charlie Sex. His name is... Is, a marquee name. Yeah, dude, Steve Naive never got that shit. You know no, what I mean? I mean like he, the rest of the guys that ever played with Elvis are like, "Fuck you, dude." No, but, but Charlie deserves that. But
2: he's a phenomenal musician. He is a really reason. And a great and
0: a, and, a, and a phenomenal spirit. And he's yeah. a
2: phenomenal individual. Yeah. I mean, I've known him since he was a sure. boy. Yeah. You know, he. I may have told the the first time I met Charlie, he asked me if I was Little Richard. <laughs> 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 Because <laughs> there was a period where I used to wear a pompadour. Yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. This was when the Fabulous Thunderbirds went retro. Right, right. right. And the stray cats from Rock-a- the rockabilly scene. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So he was like that too. I went into, I went into my quaff. You know what yeah. I mean? And I, I was digging it. Right. And yeah. A pencil mustache and a whole nine yards. Right. Yeah. Remember, like uh, Willie DeVille, like Mink DeVille. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a thing, right? Yeah. We were at Soap Creek. Charlie had just started playing out with the the Eager Beaver Boys. Yeah,
0: and I'm with Jeff and uh, and uh, and Alex and and Alex. Alex, Yeah.
2: Well, me and Alex go back like sure, sure, sure. And so Alex was the reason I came out because he's like, you got to see this kid, Charlie. Charlie, little Charlie. I'm like, little Charlie. What the? Okay, great. Uh, Let's go see little Charlie. You know. Well, sure enough, there's little little skinny, you know, twelve year old kid that looks like Elvis. Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> to me, yeah. right, like, yeah.
2: it's like little—that's what I call him, little Elvis. Yeah. You're the little Elvis, you know. But anyway, that was our—that was our first meeting, and of course, what I didn't understand was the underpinnings of his, you know, family, nuclear family situation, right? And I mean, He's, over, those over guys t- are lucky
0: to have had oh, everyone around them it that was they did. So, yeah. I've even heard Kay, their mom, say that.
2: It was just so concerning to me that it was like he was almost like a latchkey kid.
0: Oh, you know uh, what I mean? Beyond latchkey. Yeah.
2: And I just knew that Jimmy was fond of him and Stevie was fond of him and and he had talent. I could see that. Ray Charles could see that he was talented. You know what I mean?
0: And also, such a gracious cat. Like, such a gracious cat. But he
2: was so much younger. Yeah. Right? He made me a little nervous because, you know, we were kind of wild. You yeah, know, I yeah. yeah a yeah. situation where it's me and Luann Barton, and yeah, you know, some he other, saw stuff. Some yeah, other, you know, yeah, I yeah. yeah. Here's a little Charlie. I did too. Like yeah, yeah. There's this.
0: We were raised in an age and around rock and roll in a way where like no one thought like, hey man, maybe those kids should go in the room while we're doing blow. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you no, know, no, you're just seven. Like everyone's like, nah, 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 like all jacked up on blow. You're like, does anyone want to play catch? yeah <laughs> Well, you know, I don't. I do not uh, ever like. I, I, and I. I don't think. I don't think I've ever talked about it with Charlie. Like, as far as like, would you trade it for like some kid that lived in the suburbs and had no fun parents? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm. I'm kind of proud of the way that.
2: You I know, just, I think I just think God had a special affection for Charlie Sexton. Yeah, because it just worked out.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean?
2: It could have easily gone completely. Could have very much, yeah. He's really he was set up for the penitentiary as far as I'm concerned. Hundred percent. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. But that wasn't in the master plan.
0: Yeah. Him and Will really pulled themselves out of the thing and and, really. And and Will, you know.
2: So I mean, again, you know, I mean just think in terms of just the 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 talent ratio, you know, of of that DNA stemming from the complications of that nuclear family. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> if, if I ever wax spiritual, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Because I totally believe yeah. that there's divine intervention at yeah. work in our lives. It's just like I was talking to Jason. I, I believe that every day we're navigating chaos theory. Yeah, brother, we are. And that if any of us ever leave and get back home in one piece, it's almost a miracle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is, man. Um, so, hey, I want to make sure people know that this Bevis M. Griffin, the Black uh, Texas Black Rock Maverick, in conversation with Gene Fowler. I guess I could put my glasses on. Saturday, February 24th, 2 p.m. at the Texas Music Museum. I'll put a link to that in the text of this podcast. I, sadly, will be in Miami that day.
1: Wham.
0: miami miami it's my aunt mary lou's 80th birthday so i'm going to uh celebrate i'm a little jealous yeah
2: I'd well lo- you're gonna i'd love to be in miami yeah <laughs> well, i'm only gonna be in miami for
0: 48 hours which is pretty much about all i can take yeah. um being from there um that's where actually i know richard from richard and i went to high school at miami beach senior high oh, school really? yeah yeah wow
1: yeah so I all did... moved together to no, town. I moved to Houston, and
0: then he moved to Houston. He went to Rice, and then I moved here, and then he moved here afterwards. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I actually just saw him the other night at the Saxon Pub. I went to go see a show there, and he was there. He and Kelly were there. Excellent. It's good to see him.
1: Yeah, I used to see him at the Green, Green Mesquite, Mesquite. Yep. all the time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, watched his kids grow up and yeah. the girls, and and that's how I've actually kept in contact with a lot of people. i, I maintain maintained one shift a week there.
0: What is it? When is it?
1: Uh, at Friday lunches. Okay. Friday lunches and, and are you uh, going there now? Uh, no. I oh. actually s- switch shifts. I'll be there tonight. Oh okay. unusual command performance for serving dinner at four oh, okay. o'clock evening. <laughs> but I mean it's just it's it's kept my it's kept me in contact with people that aren't on Facebook or sometimes right. just come in by happenstance. Yeah. A whole host of celebrities, as I just posted on my Facebook, Mojo Nixon would come in there almost every day during March. Sad loss. In town.
2: Bless, his, bless his heart.
1: Always mm. hilarious. Always over the top. And, and yeah, I was
0: really glad I got to interview him last year cause that was easily the most I've laughed for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah,
1: I mean, every time he's on, you know?
0: So on. Yeah. At the very and beginning hilarious. of it, he's like, hey,
1: just know you can ask me anything.
0: And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're fucking like, what, what are you not? Like, everybody knows you're fucking insane. Like, what are you going to say? Yeah. It's like. Yeah, but it's a fresh way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, the Texas, the the Journal of Texas Music History, this episode, or sorry, uh, volume 23, is available now with this fantastic article about Bevis Griffin uh, written by my other guest Jason Crouch
1: and you can go online and read all the previous issues including the one with Charlie Sexton about Charlie Sexton but yeah but stylistically it's, it covers all Texas music so you can read you know about Blind Lemon Jefferson or Little Joey La Familia or Big Band in Texas whatever it may be uh, and the articles you know they don't just adhere to one style it's not just Willie Nelson God bless Willie Nelson it's- but you know
0: yeah, it's hard in it's hard in Texas, especially with the proximity to Austin, especially putting out one volume per year must be pretty hard to figure out who's gonna
2: it must to talk
1: feel pretty special. To, you'll have to talk to Doctor Millard. It's a, it's yeah, an incred- I will
0: I, I I'm going to be talking to Doctor Millard next Thursday. Yeah. So yeah. I,
2: I just wanna say it's an incredible honor and uh, I'm deeply uh, ingratiated to Jason and Doctor Millard, you know, for you know, taking the time and uh, dedicated commitment, you know, to bring my story to the forefront in a cohesive way. Yeah. It's not me just yammering on, you know, reflexively, because ain't nobody got time for all that. Yeah, I did. Better... I did have time. To... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, you,
0: you know, Bevis, it's nice to see that uh, just as another per- a person that, that's in a couple of classes younger than you in, in music, to know that you can still get your recognition that you deserve as... You know what I mean? It's important. It's important that that your story be told. and I'm glad to see that it is.
2: Well, I, I, I'm always deeply appreciative of you and you know your you know perennial brotherhood and, and conge- congenial, yeah, uh, yeah, friendship with regard to this medium and this vehicle. Because uh, I totally admire your show. It's incredible. Thank you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the work that you've amassed. Somebody hint hint should do a documentary on you. Uh, you know, because the stories that you've amassed are an uh, immense, like, public service, you know. Thanks, man. People really want to know, you know, the ins and outs of not just the music business, but the lifestyle of being an artistic craftsman. Yeah. You know, because it's, I, I like to dispel the mythology that it's not all fun and games, but. You know, once you put your shoulder to the wheel and get to a point to where it's in your wheelhouse, yeah, you would never choose another vocation in your entire life. Never, you know what I mean? No, so
1: I've wanted to, I'm at but this, you can't. Have you uh, thought about being a mechanic?
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, I'm at this point, and I just want to say this in the context of Black History Month, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. To, be, yeah, to be placed into a historic historical context is, you know beyond my wildest imagination because I, I did not go into this thinking like I'm going to be this exclusive individual in 50 years or whatnot. You know what I'm saying? I was more geared up to say, well, you know, maybe in uh, by the time I'm 30, I'll be rich and famous. And maybe by the time I'm 40, I'll be dead. I I just don't know, but I'm going for it. pedal To the metal. You know what I'm saying? So all I want to say is thank you. And, um, I would just also advise the general public, you know, just be mindful of of the youth and especially youth and people of, of color and different ethnicity and never take anything for granted to the point to where you're, you know, assuming that a person is thinking one way or the other because you don't really know what's at the heart of a person until you sit down and talk to them.
0: It's true. Um, it's great having you guys on jason crouch bevis griffin also just in case anybody also bevis is like he says that he loves what i do he's also brought me some fantastic guests in death who i also got to hang out with and watch the movie with you in a special box with like uh reclining seats which was amazing and uh and then get to talk to them at kutx and stuff and also uh you brought me the legendary doug Wimbish.
2: Who's going to be in town. Who's
0: going to be in town. On the 19th. On the 19th. With
2: baby. the legendary Living Color.
0: Yes. That's amazing. Are they with Extreme? Yes. Man, uh, uh, Living Colors, uh, uh, so I've been seeing some of their videos and stuff. I'll, we'll end this soon. But I've, I've seen, Corey, they all play great. Corey sounds fucking incredible. Incredible. And I just discovered last year that Nuno Betancourt might be the best guitar player of his genre. Go figure. I mean, obviously, we all know Vernon's a god, but I just kind of like came across Nuno and I was like, oh, wow, that guy's like a heroic guitar player. Well, you know, I it, just thought he was cute. When Extreme landed, <laughs> that was his thing. I, I recall
2: <laughs> when Extreme landed, you know, that Nuno got all of the quote unquote guitar tech type yeah. coverage. In the world, in streams of that. And yeah, and supposedly he's a really nice, cool guy. And I'm, I'm Seems looking, like a really cool guy. Looking forward to meeting him too. Yeah. So come on down to the show. You know you yes. know, we got you. Yeah, you man.
0: <laughs> I would love to do that. Um, anyway, dude, Jason, dude, it's great to reconnect with you and see you. Likewise. Yeah. Uh, it's your Good face. James when success. I saw your face, I was like, I didn't know that guy's name. And I went to your Facebook and I was like,
1: dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if I put on a wig. Uh, and reduced, It <laughs> took about forty pounds away. It looked exactly me too, the same. Me too, <laughs> I'm on a black wig.
2: But there's a uh, one thing I did want to plug before we depart because you did ask me what I was doing currently. Yes. Right. And uh, just before the screenwriters and actors guild strikes. Yes. I was in negotiations for a new TV show concept that I produced alongside uh, Luke Jacobs and Mercury Charlie. Oh, the awesome. Hot rock Yeah, yeah, tour. yeah. And I've got a show coming called uh, mercury charlie's kings of custom where it's a news magazine and 10 episodes that basically takes you behind the scenes of 10 of the greatest custom car designers in the united states oh that's killer man so that's what i'm planning to springboard off to get into the realm of tv production all right so that's what i've been doing
0: Hopefully those writers won't go on strike again.
2: Well, even if they do, we've already got this show like n- nailed up. We just need to land it. That's you know? good. But uh, you know, it's just like anything else, don't don't watch the paint dry, right?
0: I, <laughs> yeah, you'll drive yourself nuts. Yeah. Great to have you guys.
2: Cheers. Thank you, John. Bye.
0: That was Bevis Griffin and Jason Crouch. Get out there and check out the Journal of Texas Music History, Volume 23. I will put a link to it in the text of this uh, this podcast, Jason Crouch's Oral History of the Great Bevis Griffin. Also, you can see Bevis Griffin in conversation with Gene Fowler. That is uh, Saturday, February 24th, 2 p.m. at Texas Music Museum. Again, I will put the text in the link of this podcast. Listen, gang, it was great reconnecting with uh, Jason. It was always great, always great sitting down and, and talking to Bevis and listening to his great stories. All right, so uh, get out there and check out all this stuff. Read the Journal of Texas Music History. And uh, I need to find that Charlie Sexton article that he wrote, because that's actually really good, too. Um, Also, gang, don't forget, if you're listening to this show, the day that it comes out, Monday, February 12th, Happy Land plays tonight at the Saxon Pub, 6 p.m. in Austin. Come on out and see the show. And, gang, if you're new to the show, you're listening to it because you heard about it from Bevis or you heard about it from Jason You can subscribe to this podcast wherever it is you find podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, wherever you find it. New shows every Tuesday and every Friday. Although this show, we're dropping three shows this week. So uh, this show's Monday. Next one will come out on Wednesday. And then Friday will be another show. All right? Have a great week, whatever it is you're doing. Let's get down.